It's hard for me to believe, but in two weeks, graduating seniors will walk across the stage, turn the tassel to the side, and head off to whatever it is God has in mind for them, Uh, which means we have this weekend and next weekend and maybe just maybe graduation weekend to be enlivened by their presence with us on a Sunday morning and to extend the best hospitality we can. Uh, As a way of moving us in that hospitality direction, I've asked a few friends uh, to help me this morning. This is Rachel. Uh, Rachel is literally, actually a superstar. (laughs) She runs track at Hope, uh, runs faster than people like me can even think. (laughs) She like wins stuff, you know, that's how fast she is. Uh, she's off to Grand Valley State University for their physical therapy program. If you're really nice, so be nice, she might commute on Sunday mornings to Pillar. <laughs> she's going to read for us from the Apostle Peter, who borrows the prophet Isaiah. Listen to this. All flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. That word is the good news. Thank you, Rachel, very much. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. That word is the good news. I want you to keep that in mind, okay? It's probably going to come back later in the sermon. Uh, And this is Nadine. Uh, Nadine is my friend. Nadine is off to Belmont University. Uh, for a physical therapy program. Uh, In God's good providence, she's going to take a little gap year, and she might take it near Holland, which means if you're nice, really nice, she might commute to Pillar on Sundays. Uh, uh, Nadine is a rock star in every sense of the word, and not only because she knows all of the lyrics to The Greatest Showman. She's like actually cool. So she's going to read for you from the last chapter in the Gospel of John, chapter 21, that exchange between Peter and Jesus uh, after the resurrection. Listen to this. Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. A second time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter felt hurt because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Perfect. Thank you. Would you thank them with me, please? Pillar says that it wants to raise up leaders, and there they are, and there they go. Uh, Nadine just reminded us, Jesus said to Peter, not once do you love me. That might be an exercise in self-affirmation, like when I ask my daughter Mariah, guess who I love? And she knows the answer. She shouts it every time, me, not twice. That might be venturing into the land of shame. Do you love me? But three times, he asks, 
Simon Peter, do you love me? To announce after Peter's denial, you're forgiven. No shame. So get up. Get on with it. Offer yourself as good news for the world. Tend my sheep. Feed my lambs. Feed my sheep. So I thought, since that was the exchange that ended John's gospel, we could pick up that question over the next few weeks and ask it of ourselves. Do you love me? There's good evidence that, that Peter took Jesus at his word. Not only the book of Acts includes significant amounts of time to Peter, but also Peter wrote letters. He wrote them and offered them to Christian communities trying to contextualize the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus in their own locations with their own lives. Peter fleshing out what it looks like to feed my sheep, tend my lambs. The first letter goes, at least begins like this, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen and destined by God the Father and sanctified by the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and to be sprinkled with his blood, may grace and peace be yours in abundance. That's 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, Peter an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen and destined by God the Father and sanctified by the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and to be sprinkled by his blood, may grace and peace be yours in abundance. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A friend and mentor. That's loaded, isn't it? That's heavy. There's lots of big words. A friend and mentor of mine, Eugene Peterson, has a poem he wrote titled The Cradle. Uh, it goes like this. Uh, for us who have known approximate fathers and mannequin mothers, this child is a surprise. A sudden coming true of all we'd hoped might happen. Hoarded hopes, fed by prophecies, old sermons and song fragments, now cry, coo, and gurgle in the cradle, a babbling proto-language which, when it gains a tongue, and we, of course, grow open ears, will say the big nouns. Joy, glory, peace, and live the best verbs, love, forgive, Save, along with the swaddling clothes, the words are washed of every soiling sentiment, scrubbed clean of all failed promises, hung in the world's backyard, dazzling white, billowing gospel. Isn't that great? Don't, you don't think it's great? <laughs> Peterson speaks of the big nouns and the best verbs. And the apostle Peter uses them to the exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia who are chosen and destined by God the Father and sanctified by the Holy Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and to be sprinkled by his blood. May grace and peace be yours in abundance. 
grace and peace in abundance. Can you imagine? Grace and peace so abundant, you, you don't have to worry anymore about your child or about tomorrow. Grace and peace so alive, so full. The, the, the knot in your stomach unties and you find yourself free. Grace and peace so alive and real and well. When you open your Twitter account, devastation doesn't show up in 140 characters. May grace and peace be yours in abundance. It's going to happen. It's on the way. It's breaking in. So here's what I want to do. To get there, grace and peace and abundance, I want to walk slowly through those five big nouns and best verbs. If you're interested in following along, it's 1 Peter 1, 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen. God thinks pretty highly of you. To choose you. When, when God made the world in the beginning, God saw everything that God had made and thought, it's very good, and Christ sits on the throne in eternity and declares over time, I'm making all things new. And Jesus said to his disciples, you didn't choose me. I chose you. God thinks highly of you. You're chosen. Not as an elitist exclusive claim, but as an invitation into embracing. Inherent in the word is both a promise and a purpose. The promise is you are. You're chosen. So this, is, this summer, July 1, will mark the sixth anniversary of uh, our being in Holland. We're feeling pretty good about that. Six whole years. Woohoo! Uh, and we love it. We love West Michigan. We love what God is doing at Pillar. It's staggering, really. I'd rehearse the details, but we don't have enough time. We love it here in Holland. We love it here at Pillar. I would say, though, we have noticed, and, and this isn't completely figured out. I'm not totally clear on this, so feel free to push back on me just sometime later. Um, it seems to me like the standards here are high, and the demands are high, and the expectations are high, and we hand them to our kids, and they feel it in their bones. So we work harder and we do more in order to be better. And I think, if, I think, I wonder if just underneath it isn't actually a bit of an identity complex. We, we, we've latched ourselves to the letters in front of our name or the frame diplomas on the wall or how much we make or who we know or how uh, the, the reputation that precedes us. And so we work harder and we do more. We got to be better. 
Sometimes I think moms feel it the most. All the while, Peter says, you're chosen. You're chosen. You're chosen by the living God. God thinks highly of you. God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die and rise again, to choose you. You didn't choose me. I chose you. What if that's true? Work hard. You know, do your best. Not because it defines you, but because you're chosen. That's the promise. The purpose behind it is to offer your life for the good of the whole, for the common good. Uh, Leslie Newbegin says it way better than I can. Uh, He's the missionary to India. You hear me talking about to be chosen does not mean that the chosen are the saved and the rest are the lost. To be chosen in Christ Jesus, and there is no other, means to be incorporated into his mission to the world, to be the bearer of God's saving purpose for the whole world, to be the sign and the agent and the first fruit of his blessed kingdom. You're chosen for a purpose, so go. Go to PT school. And go to law school and go to the grocery store and go down 8th Street and down 18th Street. Go into your living rooms and wherever you are, you're chosen for a purpose. I just feel like someone should have said something like yes or amen or a few of you should have got up and left because you're ready to go. Big nouns, best verbs, chosen, destined, destined, oh Boy, actually, election. Glad we're in the safe confines of the Reformed tradition on this one. Election. Uh, The word sounds like this, the way Peter penned it. Uh, Prognosine. Sound familiar? Prognosine. Uh, It's used twice in the New Testament, only by Peter. Once here, the other time in Acts chapter 2, when Peter stands up after the Spirit descended Peter started preaching. He used the word prognosine. Any doctors around? Prognosine? The diagnosis is obvious. Seems to me we don't need doctors for that one. All is not well. All is not okay. It's not right in our world. Starbucks is not supposed to close 8 million stores because there's not supposed to be racial profiling. Bombs are not supposed to explode in Syria because chemical weapons aren't supposed to exist to destroy lives. There's not supposed to be hashtag movements because all of the isms that wreak havoc in our communities aren't supposed to take place. The diagnosis is obvious. You don't need my help. And God offers the prognosis. One day, every knee will bend and every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the prognosis. One day, people from every language and tribe and nation will all gather around the throne. That's the prognosis. One day, swords will become plowshares, spears will become pruning hooks, and every axe handle will become a baptismal font. That's the prognosis. 
to the exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia who are chosen and destined. That's what we're in for. That's where we're headed. That's what's going on. That's the prognosis. Peter uses the big nouns and the best verbs, chosen and destined and sanctified, who have been chosen and destined by God the Father and sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Sanctified is this, this process by which we're drawn up into holiness. It's the holying by the Spirit in our lives. God sent, God the Father sent His Son, Jesus, to redeem the world, and, and the Father and the Son sent the Spirit to holy us. Not some super spiritual elite look down on everybody else, but an earthy every day, put one foot in front of the other, grab your lunch pail and your backpack, and just commit to it. Holiness. You know, I'll venture to say it's kind of fallen on hard times. Sanctified by the Holy Spirit. We were in a staff meeting on a Tuesday, off-site, all-day uh, planning meeting. There's a whiteboard that covered the entire wall from north to south, and we put dates on the whiteboard for every Sunday, representing every week from now until mid-September. It was like five months. I don't even know what I'm doing for lunch today, but we were planning five months out. And, so, and then each of us on staff, underneath all of the dates, put down all of the things we're aware are going to be taking place at Pillar in the next five months, a building project, moving the offices to the Dykstra house, sitting on the Adirondack chairs, a lot, uh, weddings. Uh, some sort of software database collection thing that's way over my pay grade. Uh, vacations. We put down vacations and Christ in the city on Wednesday nights in the summer and Sunday school and youth group and a trip to Nicaragua and Pillar Family Camp, all of this. And a series of sermons uh, through the Apostles' Creed starting in the middle of June. Inspired by the work of a sociologist interpreted by a theologian, offered in a book titled Almost Christian, offering a bit of a diagnosis of the church in America. Churches seem to be offering a kind of diner theology, a bargain religion, cheap but satisfying, whose gods require little in the way of fidelity or sacrifice. Diner theology is much easier to digest than that, and it's far safer. So who can blame churches, really, for earnestly ladling this stew, filling its congregants with an agreeable porridge about the importance of being nice and feeling good about yourself and save God for emergencies? We've convinced ourselves that this is the gospel. But in fact, it is much closer to another mess of pottage, an unacknowledged but widely held religious outlook among Americans that is primarily dedicated not to loving God, but to avoiding interpersonal friction. There are inspiring exceptions, of course, but for the most part, We've traded the kind of faith confessed and embodied in the church's most long-standing traditions for the savory stew of moralistic, be nice, therapeutic, feel good about yourself, deism, just believe in something. And for the most part, young people have followed suit. That's the diagnosis 
by a sociologist, interpreted by a theologian. And yet Peter uses the big nouns and the best verbs, sanctified by the Holy, Holy Spirit, drawing us into holiness. Despite how you might feel on a Wednesday morning, you put one foot in front of the other anyway. Despite what the social circle might suggest, you go for it anyway. Despite all of the pressures that might just be mounting, you do it anyway. Holiness. Peter uses the big nouns and the best verbs, chosen, destined, sanctified, obedient. Who are chosen and destined by God the Father, sanctified by the Spirit, to be obedient. The outcome is obedience. The expression is obedience. The ROI, if you know what I'm talking about, is obedience. Chosen and destined and sanctified for the sake of obedience. Sometimes I think I've, I've bought into a lie that suggests if God is for me, things must go well in my life. The grand purpose of God must be my comfort, must be my satisfaction, must be my privilege, must be my ease. Peter seems to think otherwise. Peter says to be obedient to Jesus Christ. And it's hard. I mean, it just is. I've got enough sin inside of me. I'm not going to tell you about it now, but trust me. And spiritual forces of darkness around me and cultural pressure, pressures that surround that keep me from obedience. It's just easier to do something else. Actually, didn't Jesus even say something like that? Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, but narrow is the gate and hard is the way that leads to life. And only a few will find it. It is actually hard. I just feel like we should be honest about it. Like, if you find obedience, if you find discipleship, if you find faithfulness and holiness in life difficult, you're on to it. You must be bumping up against it. So much easier than the hard way of reconciliation to stay divided. It's so much easier than the hard way of forgiveness than to stay bitter. It's so much easier than it leads to destruction. The purpose is obedience. To be obedient to Jesus Christ. And then Peter adds the fifth big noun, best verb, sprinkled. Doesn't seem to quite fit with the others. Sprinkled, like in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit at baptism, sprinkled. Because it's hard to be sprinkled by his blood, because it's not easy to be sprinkled by his blood. Because sometimes, despite my best efforts, I do take the wide gate and the easy way. Sometimes I slip off the narrow path to be sprinkled. 
God in his infinite mercy and his tender kindness sent his son Jesus Christ to take the hard way, to go the difficult way, the difficult way of the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. He went to the grave to defeat death and rose from the grave to overcome sin and death so that you can be free. You don't have to be defined by your past but are open now to a future in which you can be changed, sprinkled by his blood. It's a metaphor. It's a way of saying grace for you. Grace for real. You know what I'm saying? So it's, it's hard. I can't take that away. I can't, I'm not going to pull the rug out from underneath you on this one. It's hard, the cost of discipleship. But grace is large. Grace is real. To be obedient to Jesus Christ and to be sprinkled. And all, all of this, these big nouns and best verbs, all so that grace and peace may be yours in abundance. Can you imagine? Grace and peace and abundance, no more worrying. No more violence. No more destruction and devastation and name-calling and irreconcilable differences. Grace and peace in abundance. Can you imagine? It's on the way. It's coming. It breaks in. On Wednesday of this week, we gathered in the sanctuary to give thanks for and grieve the death of Joan Zydema. Joan and George, when they were able, used to sit in the back, my left, of the sanctuary. Uh, they lived at Warm Friend for, the wa- for a while before she was moved to Borsma Cottage, part of Rest Haven on 40th Street, uh, several years ago. Uh, she's been battling an illness for quite some time. On Thursday, George and I were together at Borsma Cottage. I rang the doorbell because you can't just walk in. One of the nurses let me in. I made my way past the living room to the left and kitchen off to my right uh, into Joan's room straight ahead. George was sitting on Joan's wheelchair uh, next to her bed. Uh, How many days straight has George been sitting on Joan's wheelchair next to her bed? She was lying on her right side. Her eyes were closed. She was breathing very shallow. There was an oxygen tube across Uh, her lips feeding her air. Uh, George and I chatted for a while. We talked about death. He had just read the book, When Breath Becomes Air. A really good book. Uh, I mentioned a book by Kate Bowler. Uh, There's a reason for everything and other lies I've loved. Uh, We talked about her funeral. And then about 5.30, it was time to go. So we walked out together. Everyone... Waved goodbye to George. And then at 9.17, Joan breathed her shallow last and inhaled the full breath of eternity. When we were together before I left, um, just seeing her lay there, um, I was reminded of what Rachel read earlier. We're, We're like grass. And the flowers of the grass, the the grass withers and the flower fades. It was so obvious in the room. So I shared it with George and we prayed. A couple days later, I I was searching for her obituary in the Holland Sentinel. 
found it. It began like this. Joan Catherine Houtman Zydema, 86, went to her eternal reward on April 12, 2018, after a long illness. It just caught me off guard. Joan Catherine Houtman Zydema, 86, went to her eternal reward. I was thinking, the grass withers and the flower fades. George was thinking, and the word of the Lord endures forever. This word is the good news. Grace and peace in abundance. Grace and peace break in. Grace and peace show up here. Grace in the bread broken. Peace in the cup poured out. Grace and peace at this table in abundance, friends. Grace and peace for you. Amen? Amen. Amen.